Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. This series is brought to you by AIA Australia, committed to working with advisors to protect the financial health and welfare of more than 3 million Australians. In 2020, AIA paid over 2.2 billion in claims. That's a little over $42 million each week and clients needed it most. AIA Australia would like to help you arm yourself for your next client appointment with this five-part series into Australia's income protection industry from the 90s to now. Strengthen your knowledge and conversations with valuable insights from a panel of speakers from various backgrounds, exploring how the new generation of IP products can help your clients. Thank you for joining us in this series. We are discussing everything we can about individual disability income insurance and all the changes that are going on. Uh, there's obviously a lot to do in this particular episode. We're talking about things in the past. There is a lot has happened in the lead up to, to all this taking place. So in this particular episode, we're going to discuss what all those different things that led to this and why APRA essentially had to step in. In this series, we hear from an incredible panel of guests. Starting with Catherine Hayes, Financial Advisor and Director from Hayes & Co Insurance Services in Canberra. We then hear from Jeff Thorette, Financial Advisor and Principal from Everlesco Financial Services in Sydney. We also hear from Natalie Cameron, Lead Ombudsman Investment and Advice from AFCA, the Australian Financial Complaints Authority. And rounding out each episode is Ben Martin, Senior Technical Manager at AIA Australia. Thank you for joining me, Catherine Hayes. Lovely to be here, Fraser. Wonderful to have you on this particular podcast episode, or well, actually the series to be to be fair. Uh, tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about yourself. Okay, so um, Catherine Hayes, I'm a financial advisor based in Canberra. So I own my own practice, um, but I'm also involved in quite a few other projects around the industry, um, mostly through the AFA being the Joint Task Force, the, the Lift Group and the, the Liquid Group and a, a few, so to speak. Uh, so I'm actively trying to get myself quite involved in learning about the ins and outs of the industry and I participate on the odd insurance board here and there too. Wow, fantastic. You are certainly somebody that can can uh, give us a lot of information and on, on this particular topic. Uh, you've seen a lot of stuff going on um, from uh, from all of the, you know, all of the, I like to call it the moving pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. Um, mm-hmm. Because there's been a lot of stakeholders, I guess, uh, with all of this, and uh, as we'll go through in this particular series, but uh, and you've managed to have a, a bird's eye view of a, a lot of stuff that's going on. So wonderful to have you here. Let's start with the concept of how did we get here? Mm. Gosh, uh, so who knows when this exactly all started? But um, I know from participation insurance boards that the underlying message of that there was this burgeoning this is not sustainable. You know, so much is being paid out in claims um, and it hasn't been because more insurance claims are happening than what was expected. It's been that factor of that when people are going on claim, they're staying on claim for really long periods of time. We've had record low interest rates. 
Um, all of these things are quite challenging. And then, you know, you throw in the mix things like the Royal Commission and the losses that the big instos have had um, because of practices at the past. That's um, kind of made this perfect trifecta of all these issues and it's gotten to the point where APRA has stepped in and said, enough's enough. If you're not going to make the move, we've been waiting for you to do it, um, we'll force your hand. And, of course, that kicked off with the loss of agreed value contracts last year and now these one October changes. It's a pretty incredible move from a regulator to step. Like it's a it's a huge deal for a regulator to step in in mm-hmm. that way. Uh, why do you think that companies didn't step in first or make the move uh, first? That's that first move a disadvantage. I mean, it's not to say that some didn't. Some insurers did create um, more sustainable versions of their products, but the take up was never going to be huge when you've got more comprehensive products out there and advisors the biggest reason they're saying they're not using them is they feel like it's going to be really hard to justify that best interest duty yep and you mentioned uh, that there, there wasn't a huge uh, increase in additional claims uh, or that mm-hmm. will be that still could happen off the back of a, a yeah. global pandemic um but tell us about the, the 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 length of the claims how did we get that so wrong uh, so from what I understand, it really came down to that, uh, you know, they say it's the lack of capability clauses. It has been the agreed value being people being incentivized to be more on claim. And I think that one's a little bit of a misnomer. I think the agreed value would have had its place just fine if insurance companies weren't indexing the sums insured and guaranteeing the indexes at 5%. So that's where you get benefits growing faster than what they need to be. Um, And then you've also got the issues like the three tier definition. So a lot of cases, you just didn't have to be able to perform a single duty um, of your previous occupation. That would be enough to put you on claim. Um, So there's really that principle of indemnity being restored to compensate you for your loss wasn't really there. Uh, It really was just simply too generous. Yeah, it seems that uh, the, the number one the, the number one thing is that three tier definition, right? That's mm-hmm. that's sort of the the eighty percent. I don't know what the number is, but the, the the big chunk of what why the policies in Australia were so good compared to the rest of the world. Yes, absolutely. So uh, this is where I find it quite interesting with all these new products is that rather than pulling levers, a couple of levers at a time. Um, some of the offerings have come out and pulled all the possible levers that you could use to address the affordability factor. T- tell me about um, the rating software because there's, there's a lot of talk about how the rating software um, and simply just rating features and, and um, you know, rating features off against um, the, the premium price um, mm. caused that race to the bottom when you weren't taking sustainability into account. Gosh, yeah, that's a tricky one. I would have loved to have seen um, – that as a feature within um, all rating software. I think it would be a very valuable feature because what's the number one complaint advisors get? It's unexpected and continuous premium rate hikes. If you knew that was coming, you would have avoided that. A lot of people would have avoided that insurer. So without that information, it doesn't really leave you a huge amount to be guided um, by. Of course, you've got pricing and and product features to take into account. Um, But of course, after that, you've also got your, um, your underwriting um, guidelines because some insurers are always going to be better than others at certain aspects. Uh, so that's a really big factor. And then, of course, your experience with the teams that are managing as far as administration and claims experience. You've got all those, those those quality overlays. But if you're, but let's face it, a big factor has been trying to get the best cover for your client 
at the cheapest price. Yeah, I, I believe there was a period in the past where there was a look at sort of at insurers being assessed on their claims handling experience. Um, I've never really seen that um, pulled into any rating software that I've looked at. So that was, I guess, a good effort, but I think it kind of fell short in the end. But sustainability, and that's something that as part of the uh, task force we've had with conversations with APRA, is saying this needs to be um, this needs to be taken into account. And I think APRA is in a unique position where they have the ability to pull that data from the insurers, talk, look at their profitability, ask the insurers to provide projections, and then hold them accountable within a certain band of um, whether or not insurers are um, being sustainable or not. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, if we just take that, uh, the software themselves as a small piece of the the decision-making process, uh, and then apply those. Um, do you think Apple will do that? <laughs> oh, I think they should. I made it very clear. <laughs> they said it wasn't their job and I told them, you know, it damn well was. So, um, so uh, let's say we agree to disagree, but um, there is mounting pressure on them to be, they believe that they're not price regulators, but I'm a really big believer that you cannot manage sustainability without accounting for pricing of a product. Yeah. So the two go hand in hand. I do know that they expressed interest in gathering data um, in terms of what has happened in the past and, and looking at historic rate rises, but that will be a really big project. But I think the next step is there needs to be pressure put on them to say, well, you need to start asking for projections from the insurers because you've asked them to be sustainable. And if the insurers can project that, which I'm sure they are, that's what they've got the actuaries in the background for, um, you can simply ask them to provide those projections to APRA and APRA can say you either have or you haven't met your expected targets within a certain band. And then that data could feed into rating software. Yeah, this this comes uh, in my mind if I, if I stop thinking of insurance as a product that uh, insurance companies offer, well, which they don't, obviously with the contracts law, they, you apply, but and start thinking of it as a product and start thinking of it more of as a, as a pool of clients and the, mm-hmm. the insurance company are in trust of that money to, to do, do it wisely, um, then maybe that, that's another way that APRA should be looking at this rather than looking at it as a product that's being provided by an insurance company instead mm-hmm. of looking at it, everyone's pulling their money together and the money in the bank in the pool at this particular time is what can be used. Yeah, absolutely. So take it as more of a public trust type idea rather than just a – just a, a it's product. a huge social benefit, but just happened to have a company structure, you know, behind it. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Fantastic. Catherine, thanks so much for coming on this particular episode. We look forward to catching up with you in the next one when we chat about sustainability. Thank you. Welcome to the conversation, Jeff Threck. Thanks, Fraser. Great to be here. Looking forward to the chat. Fantastic to have you on. Now, of course, you're the uh, you're a director of a business, a Sydney-based business called Evalesco. Do you want to give us a quick uh, uh, heads up or overview of that business? Yeah, sure. So, um, Everlesco is a, a business based in the Sydney CBD. Uh, we've been up and running in this current form for about 14 years. Uh, we've got 24 staff, uh, seven advisors. So, I'm a I'm a director and an advisor. Um, probably spending more of my time on the on the director side and running the business, and you know, seeing a few less clients than I used to. And we provide holistic advice, so uh, a full you know wide range of clients across the whole demographic spectrum. Uh, and insurance is a really big and important part of what we do and, and uh, our background. Fantastic. Yeah, so you can really add a lot uh, add a lot of value to this conversation, which is fantastic. Uh, now, of course, you've also been on a couple of uh, committees and boards. Do you want to give us a quick overview of that too? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I was on the AFA board for, for five years. That's a few years ago now, so I'm, I'm a little bit out of touch there. Um, I'm on still still doing some work with the AFA on a insurance uh, panel that they convene from time to time to, to discuss topical issues, uh, including recently around the IDII changes. Um, and I'm also on the ASIC financial advice consultation panel, uh, which is which meets three times a year to discuss you know, ASIC's view and to seek input from advisors on on various things. And I've been on that panel for a couple of years. Brilliant. So you are the man to talk to when it comes to IDII and, of course, the individual disability income insurance changes that took place. In this particular episode, we're really uh, honing in on, you know, sort of how did we get here, Tell the, the past. And in, in your words or opinion, uh, give us a quick overview of how we, we got to this point. Uh, yeah, it's been a, a pretty interesting journey. I mean, I think in some ways where we are now has been a long time coming, but it's all happened with a rush at the end. So it's it's almost like a you know, 15 year overnight change. I think a few things that come to my mind when I think about how we got here is that income protection has always been the cornerstone for insurance recommendations. And it's been such an important product for advisors and their clients to, to recommend. And so thinking about where that sat in the yeah, you know, in the spectrum of, of what was important and people would to consider was that, that was often the first place people went to to look at well, does the income protection product stack up? Is it the best product? Is it a you know, cost effective? And then if it was, often the life insurance, TPD, trauma would flow to that company as well. So what that meant was that for insurance companies had to get their income protection right to get the other business. So. It was very much driven then by, well, how can we make it stand out from a research and a ratings viewpoint to make sure that it's you know one of the best products? So they added extra features, and then pricing became important. So you know you had to you know had you know discounts on the initial cost of it, or trying to come in cheaper than the others to stack it up, so that you could get all the other business because you you high likelihood of missing out on the lump sum business if you didn't get your IP right. So that meant that there was then a bit of a you know a race to the bottom, I guess on. You know, who could have the cheapest with the most features? Um, and I think research houses played a part in that. We, we bought in from a compliance viewpoint, you know, the research houses to make it easier for us to have the product stack up and support our recommendations. And that, that meant that it was all a competition for features as well as the premium. So I think that added to it as well. So I think that's that's kind of a contributor. It's really obviously there's probably a lot lot going through here, but essentially what you're positioning is that that that's became the lost leader, if you like, for for insurance companies to get or win the hearts and minds of advisors. Yeah, absolutely. And then and then the claims experience obviously got away from them, and it's been hard for them to wind that in. It's it's a big book of enforced business. Um, they've offered some really fantastic product features and benefits to clients, paid out a lot of claims, which has been fantastic for those clients which have had it. But that's led to some challenges around sustainability. And, you know, it's been frustrating, I think, from my viewpoint that, you know, I think if I had a dollar for every time someone told me over the last 20 years that income protection wasn't sustainable, I wouldn't need any life insurance anymore. But no one can kind of kind of move on it and do anything about it. I think it's, it's hard because there's a first mover disadvantage in this market because, you know, if you're the first person to come out with a sustainably priced product, you're going to be way out of the market. If you're the first person to remove all the features and benefits, then you're not going to stack up on a research viewpoint. So you're going to be out of the market, which is going to make your sustainability worse because you're not going to get any new business. So, um, you know, I don't envy the CEOs of, of uh, advice companies and having to make those decisions. But I do think it's it's a bit sad that we got to a point where it took APRA coming in and having to bang everybody over the head and, and make those changes. Um, 
before we kind of bought into it. Yeah, there's lots of ways of seeing that. Obviously, uh, you know, the the pendulum had to swing at one point and then the, and the further it went one way, the, the further it had to swing. Um, you know, is it possible that, you know, because I think what happens as you talk about this first mover advantage, we're ending up with a situation where you can't collude, right, because it's, it's, it's illegal to collude with the other companies and say let's all yep. raise our prices together. Um, but is that could that have been a, an issue as well? Or is it, you know, could APRA have stepped in earlier and, and colluded? Or, or worked with them just to say, hey, you make it sustainable? Yeah, I mean, I wonder whether, you know, that there are insurance committees around the FSC and, and that type of thing where they're talking about it and, and they're not obviously not allowed to collude, but they are all talking to each other and sharing ideas and, and that sort of thing. And I wonder whether there were some opportunities there for the FSC to kind of facilitate some of it. And, you know, because I guess when the regulator comes in, the regulator is going to come in hard. And that's what they've done and that's why there are massive changes right now. Whereas if we had been able to go to the regulator with some ideas or, you know, come up with some ideas ourselves and start to manage that process, perhaps we could have, you know, maybe maybe we would have ended up here anyway, but it maybe it would have been a gradual process as opposed to a, you know, big hammer smashing us across the head uh, all in one go. Certainly the way it feels. So obviously there's the, the product side of it and then there's the price side of it. Did we get both so wrong? Yeah, I reckon we did. I mean, it's a hard, it's a hard one, isn't it? Because from a best interest duty and advisor giving giving advice to clients, the products became so good that you know you, you could not recommend them. It was the, the extra benefits, the definitions, the you know three tier definitions, and all those types of things which came into play made it a, a really compelling uh, product for clients. So, but that obviously came with a price which wasn't priced in effectively. Yeah, you know, as we see in hindsight, um, and I guess yeah, you know, we probably knew with foresight to a degree because we've been talking about it being unsustainable for a long time. Um, you know, I, I do do wonder how many actuaries have got sacked for you know missing their targets by so far. I think if the you know, sales team missed their target by fifty percent on a consistent basis, they probably wouldn't be in a job any longer. But you know, they, they clearly got the pricing, and I think. Claims experience obviously a lot worse than what they thought. Um, low interest rates in recent years has, has made things much harder, but yeah, they missed it by a long way. So they got both wrong. Yeah, I do wonder whether the actuaries missed it by so much, or whether it was known and, and said, "Look, we know we're going to miss it, but as you as you sort of mentioned before, we're going to need to have this as a loss leader." Um, yep. And and talk to me about claims experience because I think um, you know we uh, you know I'm sure you administer plenty of claims. Uh, in your business, uh, are claims getting – are there more claims or are they just longer claims when it comes to income protection? We've definitely got um, more longer-term claims on the go now than, than we ever had. Um, I guess that's a function of the business being around for longer and, you know, clients getting older and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, certainly mental health has been the one that you've talked about the most. That's the one which we've got a few clients on longer-term claims for for that as well as other issues, but that tends to be one that sort of springs to mind. And it's a re- they're really, really hard, um, hard on everybody, hard obviously on the client who, who's, you know, suffering that, that mental illness, um, hard on the insurer to make that process as palatable as possible for someone who's going through a difficult time, hard on the advisor to, to sort of keep on top of that and support the, the client and, and hard to know when, you know, when they're right to go back to work. And and that's what people have found and, and that's why it is, um, you know, they do drag out. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for coming on this particular episode. We look forward to um, chatting to you throughout the series and we look forward to catching you in the next episode. Fantastic. Thanks, Fraser. Thank you for joining us, Natalie Cameron. Oh, hi, um, Fraser. It's lovely to be here.
Fantastic to have you along. Now, of course, you are currently the lead ombudsman for investment and advice at the Australian Financial Complaints Authority. Uh, that's that's right. Um, you know, after a long career in life insurance, uh, I've ended up having the fortune of uh, being a decision maker and leading a team of decision makers at the uh, uh, Australian Financial Complaints Authority. And so I'm I'm really having a huge amount to do with advisors still, including on life insurance complaints. Yeah, fantastic. It's wonderful to have you along, by the way. And of course, some amazing experience uh, on your resume from working at large financial uh, or large insurance firms all the way through to even a, a time working with ASIC um, and a, a, from a legal background. Uh, that's right. You, you probably have to say uh, it looks impressive, Fraser. <laughs> Thank you. It's um, it's been a, it's been a great career uh, to date, and I I must say I've um, you know really uh, enjoyed it and looking at it from a different perspective uh, in my current role. Yeah, it's fair to say that you've spent uh, looking at many different angles of this that we're about to go through. We're talking about uh, IDII and all the changes that have taken place and are still continuing to take place. Uh, and, and I guess you've actually seen it from a lot of angles. Of course, you can't always comment from all those angles representing uh, an authority. Well, that's right. I mean, AFCA is an independent um, alternative dispute resolution uh, body and um, we're not for profit. Um, uh, we're not here to make money. We're, we're here to help resolve complaints so that people don't spend all of their time and money in the courts. So, um, But we don't make policy, uh, you know, and, and, and we certainly leave that to the government and the regulators. We're not actually a regulator. Um, so, uh, yeah, look at, at – there are some things I can't comment on, but, um, but certainly uh, lots of things I can. Wonderful. Now let's kick this off. Um, we're uh, we're halfway through, as we as we said before. This the the, the changes that the, a lot of changes took place in October uh, this year or twenty twenty one, I should say, depending on when you're listening to this. But tell us about uh, tell us about the background. Uh, what, what's your thoughts on you know how we got to this place? Uh, you know, I think really it was a, a perfect storm of a, of a multitude of different um, uh, forces that uh, that got us here. I I don't know that there's any one you know one party to blame. I mean, you know, as a lawyer, I, I heard the lawyers blamed a lot. I, you know, I, you know, I heard the the poor actuaries blamed, or the, uh, you know, it, you know, was it was it the advisors or the insurance companies? Or there, there are a lot of things that um, converged to lead to uh, really more and more generous products, uh, which inevitably led to uh, you know unexpectedly. Uh, large price increases uh, over the time, and certainly from an Africa perspective, we we certainly receive a lot of um, complaints from consumers about whether or not their claims are paid, and those um, those are generally made against insurers. But we also do receive a, quite a decent amount of complaints about unexpected um, IP premium increases, um, and that's probably something that uh, that. Nobody could have foreseen, uh, you know, an, a, a number of years ago. Yeah, there's, um, as you mentioned, the perfect storm. A lot of different things converging to create the issue or the problem. Uh, the, I guess, the big thing from from APRA's point of view, and obviously you can't speak on APRA's point of view, but was the just the sheer amount of money being paid out uh, in claims. That you know, the the dollar, the the ratio, I guess, for um, money being paid out per dollar being coming in. Mm-hmm. Oh look, I, you know I managed the claims function at AIA for um, for a period, and then at MLC Life, uh, and the the incoming claims 
uh, waves and waves of claims. Um, I mean, these these are you know <laughs> to look at it positively, these were products that really um, met people's needs and um, you know in in terms of medical conditions and certainly mental health uh, was a significant contributing factor. Just an enormous uh, and unexpected and uh, unreserved for really uh, amount of incoming claims. Yep. Now the um, we've been through the, the period of um, some real large premium shock, as you mentioned, uh, and from from as you said, from where you're sitting, that that uh, takes up a fair chunk of the the work that you're doing. Are people unhappy about that? Oh, look, it's, I wouldn't say a fair chunk. It's certainly a decent number, though. Uh, what what I get um, quite a bit of is, and I should just mention that Africa can't make decisions about whether or not the price of a product is the right price um, or even whether, you know, the cost of getting advice is the right, um, is the right cost. Uh, but we can, we can hear complaints about um, bad advice and, you know, or, or advice that is not in the best interests um, or appropriate for the, um, for the customer. And w- what has happened is that a lot of people bought these um, uh, IP products they might have been warned, um, you know, to some extent about, you know, the potential for premium increases. Uh, they they just didn't expect the premium increases to be so significant. And later on, they'll um, sometimes let those products go. Sometimes they'll let those products um, uh, go before they um, – and then find themselves with a the medical condition uh, and they'll um, make a complaint to AFCA saying that they weren't properly advised about the cost, uh, you know, of, of the product. Yeah, it's certainly a very tricky one, isn't it? From I guess from a from a legal background, the warnings were there and the signs were there, but the as you said, the expectation is not a it's a it's a, almost a uh, it's not the it's the emotional part of our brain thinking about that, isn't it? Not the not the logical part. Do, do you know complaints? I mean, you've really hit the nail on the head. Uh, complaints are, are mainly about that mismatch between expectation and the outcome. Um, you know, p- people put a lot of trust into their advisors and they reveal a huge amount of personal information, you know, medical and financial information that they probably don't tell anyone, even people in their family. Um, And when something happens that, you know, causes them to think it might not have been um, the best decision, uh, for example, they've paid a huge amount in premiums and they they have to let the policy lapse um, uh, and they're, you know, or they haven't been covered for something they expected. Uh, yeah, it does sort of um, that 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 trust. Um, you know, that trust can be easily, maybe not easily breached, but feel, um, you know, feel like it's been breached. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Nelly, thanks so much for coming on and chatting to us in this particular episode. We look forward to chatting to you throughout the series, and the next one we'll tackle the idea of sustainability. Okay, looking forward to it. Thanks, Fraser. Ben Martin, welcome to the conversation. G'day, Fraser. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Now, give us a quick uh, give, give us a quick overview of your position at the moment with an AIA. I work in the technical services group at AIA, so that's code for someone that just loves the detail, the fine print that's embedded in underlying tax, superannuation law, estate planning strategies. So, I spend a lot of my time working side by side with uh, financial advisors right across the country, helping them if they need it acting as that second opinion or sounding board whenever they are stuck or just want to have a chat with a techo nerd about features or parts of the underlying laws that underpin their strategic type of financial advice. 
Yeah, well, I would imagine you're one of the busiest humans on on the planet at the moment. Yeah, unfortunately, look, there's lots of regulatory red tape, ever-changing laws, rulings and the like. Um, That keeps me busy and on my toes. I know it's not as well received on the other side by our, our, our advisor network, but look, that's just the nature of the beast and this is my passion and I'm happy to be here to share some different insights. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. You can't always be the bearer of good news, but uh, at least you're the bearer of, of, of something to say. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, the, thanks so much for being part of the series. We are talking about uh, IDII in, in, in particular, in this particular um, episode, we're thinking about the past and how we got here. What are your thoughts on how we arrived at the space where, uh, where IDII, IDII became a necessity? If I look at the previous income protection product settings, and this is obviously the world before APRA decided to step in and initiate step change and intervene in the DII market, we had a whole bunch of income protection contracts that were fundamentally uh, filtered or contained with a whole bunch of bells and whistles, Fraser. Now, in a way, that was very much a result of what we refer to as an arms race amongst the various insurers in, a, in an attempt to grapple for position and for market share off the back of particular features and bells and whistles that they could offer to their income protection policy holders. Um, that was status quo for some time. And unfortunately, in the end, that arms race led to a whole bunch of prudential and systemic risks that began to emerge within the retail income protection space of this country. Uh, And that is fundamentally why APRA, and and this has been well articulated in their papers, but that is fundamentally why APRA did decide to intervene, formally intervene, um, and prescribe a set of measures that insurers must adhere to if they want to continue to play in this retail income protection space from October 2021. Yeah, now you mentioned the bells and whistles. with the, with regards to the, the the level of products in the old the old world, uh, let's call it the old world. The, you mentioned bells and whistles. Um, was it the definition of disability that was probably more damaging, or was it was it? Do you think the bells and whistles? Well, probably a combination of of both. So when I talk about bells and whistles, um, what I'm alluding to there are you know features within the old world IP contract that had the effect of paying a monthly insured benefit that in quantum uh, exceeded the claimant's levels of gainful employment income that they were deriving prior to the injury actually actually occurring. So APRA referred to this in their papers as overly excessive income replacement ratios. Now, those overly income replacement ratios generally came off the back of some of those bells and whistles that were traditionally tied into those old world IP contracts. The problem there is if we've got a disconnect between what the claimant was earning prior to the injury and what they're now being paid pursuant to one of these old world IP contracts, that fundamentally created a disincentive for the claimant to return to work, particularly in circumstances where they were perhaps fit and able to return to work in some capacity after the event actually occurred. So that in turn led to a deteriorating claims experience for all of the insurers across the board. Um, And that has got to a point where that has spiraled out of control to the point where the industry is looking at in excess of three to $4 billion of losses 
within this within the retail income protection books across the country. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, certainly unsustainable. We'll get into the sustainability conversation in the next episode. Um, talk to us about the the stats from APRA that came out. Um, obviously, they sort of talk about things like the percentage of of the dollar uh, that goes into a, a product that's getting paid out in claims. Yeah, it's interesting that. So when we look at the publicly available information that APRA have published that details the statistical um, experience or the experience within the retail IP world, what we're finding at the moment is that within the if, if we look at the retail IP space in isolation, for every dollar of premium that's received for these contracts, insurers on average are paying out about 75 cents in the dollar right, for every dollar of premium received for a retail IP contract. That contrasts with what we're seeing in the group salary continuance space where for every dollar of premium received, these group contracts are on average paying out a dollar and five cents in claims. So there's obviously red flags there as, you know, for, from a group salary continuance perspective and, 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 and there's big question marks around the ongoing sustainability within the retail IP space moving forward. Yeah, there's some really interesting figures in that, uh, that, ASIC, uh, that APRA, I should say, paper, including non-advised uh, individual and, and non-advised group, um, uh, sorry, non, sorry, non-advised individual being right up to about 120% uh, yes. of for every dollar. Uh, definitely unsustainable, but it's not just around getting it under the dollar, is it? Because that's what would a sort of a, a normal level be? It's still 70 odd, 75% or what I think uh, is still too high, 77%. It's still too high from an individual advised product. Yeah, correct. And, and so remember, this is why APRA have stepped in. In the first place, they have identified the prudential risks that have been emerging within this, within retail IP for some time. Um, and if we don't, I guess, toe the line and come to the party with these APRA measures, then there's a big chance that these products will remain unsustainable and there's a big chance that insurers will start to remove their retail IP products from the market. And most importantly, that's going to have damaging consequences for our Australian clients and consumers in the long run. Yeah. Now, I guess the good news story about that, uh, that is past claims history, is that that money is going to people who need it most? That's right. Yeah, I, I, absolutely right. Um, and that's why we're here. At the end of the day, we want to make sure as an insurer that our policyholders, our customers, Australians, have that peace of mind that they can fall back onto a robust contract that will replace a portion of their income. Should they, should they become temporarily disabled or ill? And so that's ultimately why we're in the business. We want to ultimately ensure that clients um, not only are, are living healthy, healthy lives prior to the trigger event occurring, um, but you know, if there is, if, if God forbid the client does suffer from one of these unexpected illnesses, there's comfort and peace of mind knowing that there's one of these robust contracts that, that they can fall back onto. Yep, and uh, to, to, in my brain, the way that I uh, the way that I think about this is the fact that it's obviously there's a pool of people all putting their money in, and uh, the insurance company is not necessarily the issuer of product, although technically it is. Uh, it's the uh, the administrator of that pool, and to make sure that the money is paid out fairly, uh, and obviously the more generous the contract, the uh, the more uh, the easier it is to claim, and the, and the more that money is paid out. So then the pool has to they obviously be topped up by the consumers. Uh, that are essentially made the pool. Correct. Yeah, that's that, that's right. 
Ben, thanks so much for coming on this episode. Uh, we look forward to uh, chatting to you about sustainability in the next episode. Thank you, Fraser. Mm-hmm.